What's up, everybody? It's Luke Thomas. It's my dog, Barbus. Uh, and this is the promotional malpractice live chat. Today is, uh, let's see, Tuesday, December 23rd, 2014. Today on the docket is going to be um, <clears throat> Rampage Jackson going from Bellator back to UFC. It's going to be Dominic Cruz's injury of or tearing of his ACL on the right knee. It's going to be talk of all that happened in 2014, a recap of UFC Fight Night 58 with Leona Machida absolutely bludgeoning CB Dalloway. And of course, whatever you want to talk about, best place to do that is on MMAfighting.com. Stop, buddy. Is uh, MMAfighting.com. You can also uh, tweet me at SBN Luke Thomas. Just make sure to use the hashtag chat rappers and uh, any kind of comment that's in the stop buddy any kind of comment that's in the uh comment section of mmafighting.com that screen gets priority barbus kept me up all night and i want to throw him out the window say hi everybody show him how cute you are but how annoying and awful you are as a creature and how i wanted to kill you and send you back to the pound yes all right you're very tired aren't you all right love you buddy bye go okay anyway that dog kept me up all night, and I wanted to throw him out the window. But I managed to avoid that because if, I am a dog lover at the end of the day. All right, so let's kick this chat off. Uh, normally, we do this on a Wednesday. Today, it's uh, on a Tuesday. It's because tomorrow is Christmas Eve. I got stuff going on with the family. I'm sure you do, too. So why not just do it today, huh? All right. So the first question is kind of a sad one. Uh Jeez, man. Boy, you guys got off to a roaring start here. As much as I hate to imagine it, what are the chances we never see Dominic Cruz fight again? I think the chances of him not fighting again on that particular issue, on that particular level, is is pretty small. Uh, I would suspect that you will see him fight again. But, you know, listen, he's going to be out, what, nine months to a full year if you include another fight camp and getting back in there. So he already lost three. So we're talking about four years gone. Uh, let me see exactly how old he is. I think he's like 27, if I'm not mistaken, maybe 28. I just want to verify. 29 now, actually. Right? So, um, wow, it's even worse. Okay. So he is, his birthday is in September. He just turned 29. So he'll probably be back sometime after his birthday. Um, he'll be 30 when he returns. He'll have lost four years in his 20s. I mean, we are talking about... There's just so many things wrong with it, with this picture. There's so many things that went poorly. First of all, number one, or maybe it's not your order of priority, but it's on my mind. Okay. We talk about the accomplishments he could have had. We talk about the title defenses or, you know, the kind of in-cage accolades he could have amassed. And those are important. But to me, I just can't stop thinking about how much money he's lost. Right? Because, you know, you can't take money with you when you die, but you can take it with you when you leave the game. And he has lost enough that he can't ever get it back. I mean, he'll make money if he continues to fight, and I, and I think he will. But understand, he was the champion when he left, and he had it taken from him because he couldn't compete. But one assumes he, and based on the way he looked against Mizugaki, but one assumes that, and it's an assumption, but I don't think it's a crazy assumption. 
if you say if he left as champion, he was either going to be defending his title or all likelihood competing in like number one contender spots if he got beat by somebody, you know, or like, you know, very high level championship caliber opponents, if not just maintaining the title the whole time. Right. That's what we're talking about here. Imagine the money he's lost. He's easily lost seven figures. Easily. I hesitate to say eight, but but my other dog's here. But maybe. Certainly seven figures. Certainly. He's lost millions. And when you think about fighting after you're done, or rather your, your life after fighting, are you going to open a gym or a juicing place or something, some other sort of business you're going to invest in or start up, that kind of money is critical. And now, you know, listen, He's been a good analyst on Fox. He's been, I've been told by other fighters in Alliance that his sponsors took care of him and UFC took really good care of him. And I'm sure that they did. I have, I'm, I, and you know, they don't get any credit for that. So maybe it's worth saying that they should get credit for that. Um, I'm sure the UFC has paid him enough to, you know, maintain his bill or keep pay his bills and, you know, have a little bit extra lying around to do things that might, he might be necessary. And that's extremely generous of them, but that's still not what he was going to be making if he was fighting on pay-per-view and getting pay-per-view points. And of course, he wasn't a big star, but if he had been the co-main on an event where there was a big one, he would have gotten a lot of money. He would have gotten a lot. He's lost millions. And I, you know, I'm sure he can make money if he returns, but he's going to return on when he's 30. It's just, it's, 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 it's horrible. It's a nightmare. It's a total nightmare. You have I, I have genuine heartfelt sorrow for Dominic Cruz, a guy so smart, so capable, so ready of doing things. He's like a likable, like legitimately talented RG three. Because someone was bringing this up, you know, RG three tore his uh, ACL in that game against Seattle in 2012 that he should have been, in, and he was never the same afterwards. Now Cruz came back and just whopped, you know, Molly whopped Mizugaki. But that's sort of my point. Like he's actually a legitimately talented guy, but he's had. So much of his career derailed from injury. And I just begin to think, like, forget the belts and the media interviews and when he was going to headline and all that's very important. We're talking about real life and death matters here, about having a retirement, not retirement per se, but something to take you into the next stage of your life. And that has been taken from him. Uh, It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. I do think he'll come back. I do think he'll fight again. But we're talking about a portion of the game that has been lost it's almost as if he went to jail. You know what I mean? That's what it feels like. It's like it's just a portion of the game. You cannot get that time back. And I even hate saying those words, you know, but it's just the it's just the way life works. Life is so incredibly unfair. That job is insanely difficult. And when the two meet, it is it is hard to stomach. It is super hard to stomach. So listen, I do think he'll fight again, but let's talk about the reality here. Torn groin. Two ACL repairs on one knee and now one on the other. You know, he relies on a lot of movement. He relies on a lot of ex- explosive explosive uh, darting in and out. He relies on cutting angles. He relies on timing. He relies on reflexes. And those are things, those are reflexes he uses in a game of skill about knowing when an opponent's going to do things, you know, making them do certain things by what you do. So, you know, he, he has all the craft that he needs and the smarts that he needs but your body still has to perform up to a certain level. And he looked good against Mizugaki, no doubt, but we didn't see it over the long haul. We didn't know how he was going to look, you know, three rounds in, four rounds in, five rounds in. And, you know, all indications are that he probably could have been up to the task, but now another year on the other leg, 
it's uh, it's horrifying. The only thing I would say, though, and I don't want to like you know act in a scolding or accusatory way, but we often talk about what's happened to Cruz as a function of like luck, you know. Oh, it's a lack of serendipity, man. You you know you got to ask the hard question here. If he has a torn groin, if he has these two injuries on one knee and now on the other knee, and this has all happened in the span of roughly four years, three years really, um, or four, whatever. Is he doing it to himself? I mean, guys get injured and bad things happen. You can slip on them. Someone just mops a floor. You can slip. Okay, fine. Um, Training can go the wrong way. You get heel hooked or someone just slips and falls on you and you twist an ankle or you get sick and you get staph infection. All kinds of things can go wrong. Like if you go to the hospital to get treated for something, oh, I need to get stitches. And they stitch you up and you get MRSA at a hospital, which by the way is not that hard to happen. Okay, that's just getting unlucky. But if you tear an ACL and then you re-tear it and then you tear your groin and then you tear your other ACL, you have to take a moment to reflect to wonder whether or not it's something you're doing. Certainly he might be injury prone in that way. Um, And, you know, he mentioned that he was under a certain kind of specified training regimen, well within what doctors recommended or trainers and other physical therapists had probably recommended for him as the acceptable limit. And maybe he was staying within it, but maybe they were all wrong too. You know, I don't know. It's hard to say exactly. I just would say this. It's hard for me to accept the idea that all those injuries can happen to one person in that short a time span and it f- to be just like Murphy's law or bad, you know, coincidence to me, there's some measure, some measure. I think I hate to say it, some measure of culpability there. You know, I don't mean to pin, pin blame on him. I'm sure he's in a, in a desperate spot and in a horrible spot. I'm not, I, I don't say this to be accusatory or like take a look at the mirror, Dominic Cruz. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is if we're trying to identify some kind of underlying culprit here, some kind of unifying theme, is a little bit of this self-inflicted, even if unintentional, and, and you know, I'm doing what the doctor tells me. Maybe the doctors hoard you. Maybe the doctors gave you bad info. In that case, it would be, you know, uh, you know, a lack of serendipity. But in, in, in any case... I just mean to say it, it, um, it's just, it's just awful. There's just so many things about it that are awful that you can say about it that are awful. It's just the worst. All right. I'm sure you all love hearing the sound of me drink water with Bellator's lawyers taking control of the rampage situation. Do you think rampage won't be fighting in the UFC for quite some time? until these contractual issues get hashed out. Also, if he does fight, what do you think makes sense for him as a first fight? Manoa, Maldonado, Lil Nog. Um, yeah, it's crazy. So I've been trying to like noodle this one. What the hell? Uh, I've been trying to noodle this one. So like, folks have been asking me, like, oh, why did this happen this way? Or why did it happen this way? And um, what does this mean But UFC? Here's what I would say about this whole rampant situation as like a general way to look at it. I, I, uh, I cannot let go of the emotional tenor of fans about rampage 
when he exited the UFC for the first time after the Glover Teixeira fight. I mean, do you remember how bitter the sentiment was towards Rampage? It was substantial. Fairly or not. I'm not here to say, oh, it was the most fair thing I've ever heard in my life. But uh, I just I just had a... I mean, it was palpable how upset they were with Rampage, right? And I, I don't know if that's forgiven or not, but I think what we found when he went to, went to Bellator was he was still a guy that could move the needle. He was still a guy that folks cared about. He was still a guy that could produce live audiences. He was still a guy that you could use for matchups. He was still a guy you could build shoulder programming around. He was still a, he was still a guy that had an effect over fans in terms of whether they cared or whether they didn't. And... um if you accept that idea and then you further accept the I, the fact that Bellator was able to draw, you know, nearly, not quite, but nearly two and a half million people with Stefan Bonner and Tito Ortiz in a headlining bout where one dude was pulling a mask off another dude as the buildup, you know, and you're like, that got two plus million. I mean, Leota Machida just, you know, uh, bulldozed the internal organs of CB Dalloway and that didn't even crack a million on Fox Sports 1. Right, that's what we're talking about here, and they did two, two point two, two point three, or something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers now. Maybe even up to two point four um, in terms of their peak after DVR with Tito Ortiz and Stefan Bonner. The lessons to take away from that are the following: one, Rampage being signed by the UFC hurts Bellator more than it helps UFC. Number two, it does, however still help the UFC. If you think about it logically, they have 45 shows next year. They're going to need headliners or co-main events or just people on a main card that get people to show up and uh, and 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 can deliver in terms of an engagement, viewer engagement, live attendance engagement. Number three, the master's division of MMA is a real thing when you pit them up against other masters. So, for example, look at Metamoris on one of the shows that they had. Now, it wasn't the headlining one, and I still think Rampage might serve in a headlining capacity, but look at they did Sean J. or no, uh, they did Salo Hibero versus Comprito, right? It was legend versus legend. And the bout was kind of interesting. A lot of grip fighting. I know folks may have not liked that, but I think for anybody who's trained at least a little bit, they don't mind the grip fighting. And a lot of the other things were great. Some of the interesting tri- sweeps that were attempting. And um, uh, there's a lot that went on that was kind of interesting. And I think folks, if you had matched up Comprito versus Bouchesha or, you know, Salo Hibero versus Hadolfo Vieira, it's not as interesting because you know the outcome is sort of going to lean toward the younger, more talented, newer, fangled guy. But a master's division has value, and therefore Rampage versus Shogun has value. And Rampage versus a set of other veterans that may be aging but still of some benefit has value. Now, you can't exclusively give him that, but Rampage versus Dan Henderson again, Rampage versus um, Rashad Evans again, Rampage versus Shogun. These are all things you can do. You can build shows around this or at least have it in a co-feature. And, you know, Rampage is not going to fight much longer, so maybe he fights, what, four, five, six more times at most? I can't imagine he does six more fight camps. That sounds kind of crazy to me. That still has value. Fourth takeaway I would have on this one. Spike TV is the home of mixed martial arts. And yes, I'm certainly biased in this regard. On 2012, you all know, for about six months, I had a, I was part of a TV show on the channel. Um, so take my opinion for what it is worth. But it just seems to me, if you can put on Lyoto Machida, who is unequivocally one of the best fighters ever in mixed martial arts, and that's a fact, certainly one of the better fighters today at middleweight, and he can just bludgeon CB Dalloway in the way that he did and can only not even crack a million viewers 
on a sports network, uh, you know, smaller sports network, that's fine. doesn't have the same reach and the same visibility and the same viewership, but you have a much better product ostensibly, even if it is in Brazil. And that isn't even doing half of what Tito Ortiz versus Stefan Bonner is doing on Spike TV. That is the home of mixed martial arts. It's a better channel for it. It's a bigger channel. And it's one with an established sort of history and 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 shared relationship with the MMA audience. There's still an affinity there. There's still this 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 feeling of familiarity when you put on there's just something about MMA and Spike TV working hand in glove in such a seamless way. And maybe it didn't feel that way when Bjorn Rebney was working at Bellator and it maybe felt a little more natural with Scott Coker, or maybe it doesn't to you, but the numbers sort of tell us that there's an MMA audience who will watch this and there's a Spike TV audience who will watch this. And when the twain shall meet, they do big numbers. There's just no denying that the visibility you can get on Spike TV for your MMA product is, is, you know, beyond parallel. I mean, that 2.2 million, 2.3 2.3 or 2.4, whatever it was for Tito Ortiz versus Stefan Bonner, that's only slightly less than what they did for UFC on Fox. <laughs> I mean, think about that. That's We're not talking about substantially different numbers. The Ultimate Fighter finale season 14 beat uh, UFC on Fox, I believe, at least in the overnights. I mean, that's kind of crazy. Fifth takeaway. Imagine some of the possibilities here. Maybe they go and they outright beat Bellator in this issue uh, and Viacom and they get Rampage and they use them as they want or maybe they don't maybe they can't get Rampage and they are this is a gambit to just uh, make sure that at least if they can't have him well no one can have him that means Bellator can't use him because he's tied up in courts that could be I don't see that as the likeliest possibility but if I'm just sort of noodling potential things that they're working on that seems to be a possibility Folks have asked, to what extent does this relate to the lawsuit? And it's really hard to say. It's it's hard to understand. You know, trying to get involved in in contractual squabbling in the middle of a lawsuit about anti-competitive practices doesn't seem like the best time to do it, but maybe there's some kind of thing where they want to get Bellator into a lawsuit to show that their might is substantial, that they would lose this battle, and that if Bellator wins, it shows that they are, look, look how, how powerful can we be? We can't even sign this guy whose contract is over. This, this proves that, that we are no monopoly. Perhaps that's the gamble as well. Again, I'm just, I don't know how likely these scenarios are, and as I articulate them, they don't feel very likely, but we, we, we can't discount, discount them at the outset. Uh, and the last thing I'd say, though, is in UFC's defense about all this, you know, we've they've always been really good about, at least from the outside looking in, about not messing with people's contracts. About if you have a deal with someone and the terms are clear and specified, UFC won't go near you. They won't touch you. They won't. They won't do anything. They'll barely even talk about you in, in many cases. Um, others not, but you get the idea. They've never been one to meddle in another person's contract. If they are doing that here, that seems very uncharacteristic. I'm not saying they are or they aren't. Again, I would know who's seen Rampage's contract between, besides Viacom and UFC lawyers? Nobody. But um, I, it's really it's bizarre. It's bizarre. They've never been known to do this in the way it's being presented. They're usually on the other end of this. And this time they're on the end. They're usually not. And I don't know what that means. But I can just imagine Viacom's lawyers are not to be trifled with. So who's going to win? Nobody knows. I have no concept of what's going to happen here. But this is one you should watch because it's going to play itself out pretty quickly, which is to say if Rampage isn't going to fight, you're going to know that. 
you're going to know that, and he's going to be stuck in limbo for a while. Or either they're going to win pretty quickly, and you're going to see Rampage with UFC gloves on staring across Shogun on some Fight Night or Fox card, or maybe even pay-per-view. Ron Gracie debuted yesterday at Real FC1 and won via armbar at three minutes and five seconds. I don't even think the fight was that long. Oh, right. Well, about, about two minutes in length. Did you see the fight? How far do you think he can take his MMA career? Yeah, um, I did see it. I did see it. Uh, I'll say this. His, he uses a, So he pulls guard, actually, which is just bizarre. But he pulls guard. Actually, it's not that bizarre if you think about it. But anyway, he pulls guard, uh, full guard. And then you do does what we call a high full guard, where he you're still in full guard, but he's got sort of one leg around your hip and one leg kind of over the shoulder. You're not quite in, you're not quite out. It keeps you in place, prevents the pass. It's easy to put back down on the hip if you need to, or to then transition to a submission. Uh, the guy gets kind of caught in there, and then because the arm is across his body, and then he uses it to throw the arm over, and then he actually come like underneath. Um, for the arm bar so he gets it so on the plus side i'd say that chrome gracie's arm bar game is it's about as close to perfect as you're going to get you know and an mma perfect too where he doesn't try these big motions you know when you try big motions in fighting it requires a lot of energy it requires a lot of timing um not to say they don't work because sometimes they work and sometimes that's the preferred option but I've often found in MMA, it's hard to do. But if you have the kind of game where you can climb to a submission, you know, piece by piece, that to me is often preferable. It's the gimmicky guys that can't do that. I talked about this on the Monday Morning Pod uh, Analyst with, you know, you go between the bout between uh, Sasaki and Issa from the last fight night. Sasaki was one of these big movement guys where he tried these one sweeping things. He never really, you know, or tried them from odd angles where it's real low percentage because he has a weird body type. And it just doesn't work against a guy who methodically builds to, to, to put you in danger. A guy like Issa, a much more comprehensive understanding of the game. Um, you know, you could see that kind of thing you saw in Issa in the arm bar that Crone had. On the downside, whoa, that striking. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, it was like looking at his father in the Tokyo Dome in like 2000 or something. It was bad. To say bad, which is to say non-existent. Uh, it's the kind of... You know, it's I call it the horse f- style of fighting, where they have their hands up and they use that lead leg to like kick at you, not like a teep, almost like a range finder. And then as the weirdest penetration step ever, where they like they push on your front leg with their leg, not a teep. It's not it's not what that is. And then they they use it, they pick it up, pick it up, and then they dive into you to close the distance, kind of just cover their face, and they may eat a shot or seven on the way in. Uh, but it's just to close the distance. And once they get around you, they, then they do their thing. So to me, look, the armbar game was perfect, but this is not something that is you know hugely revelatory about Kron Gracie. We knew that he had an incredible jiu-jitsu game, and he has a good one for MMA, it seems like, too. You know? um, arm bar, he, like, for example, armbars, you know, it's just going to be really good for MMA. It's, it's hard to pull off armbars from the guard in any style of grappling, but it's better in MMA where you have guys throwing punches and, um, you know, passing against something like that's going to be hard. So it's good to keep everyone. And, and I remember I mentioned before, 
if you guys saw the Monday Morning Analyst, go back and watch the Pat Cummins um, uh, Antonio Carlos Jr. fight where Carlos Jr. was working like a knee shield with, with wrist control, but he wasn't pulling the guy's head down. Crone had that no problem. Crone pulled the head, head down, and what happened? He went for an armbar because you need them close to your body to get that armbar. You can't have someone with great posture and get an armbar. There's just no angle for it. So he's got all that, but the wrestling, I mean, the fact that he didn't try a takedown was kind of bothersome. You pull guard against someone better than that, and you're going to get crushed, and then the striking. I mean, there's just no striking. It, it looked like he, I hope he doesn't subscribe to the idea that you heard – you know, other members of the Gracie family, not all of them, but some members espousing like jujitsu is all you need to succeed. It's this comprehensive style of both self-defense and applicable for sport fighting. It's the best martial art. It's the one everyone should learn. And believe me, I think there's a tremendous amount of value to jujitsu, but in modern elite prize fighting, it is, it is not enough by itself. Um, if he continues to, to compete, I, I hope he accepts that idea. If all he wants to do is fight a bunch of Japanese guys, he's going to beat the S out of. Okay, fine. Uh, our man, MJC Flip Dust Script, who works for Fightmetric, laced us with some information, which I'll read here about the year in review. This is awesome information. Events and finishes. Ready? Here we go. The UFC held 46 events with 503 fights. Both new annual records. Each event averaged 10.9 fights, the lowest average since 2010. That 10.9 average, however, is quite close to 2011, which was 11.1, and 2012, which was 11 averages as well. Spotlight in 2013, which had 12.5 fights per card as an outlier. Finishes. 2014 featured 250 finishes for a 50% finishing rate, or roughly. Each year since 2010 has featured a finish rate uh, from 50 to 52%. Annual, this is interesting to me. Annual finishing rates from 2006 to 2009 range from 56 to 68%. As he says, those days are long gone. Knockouts. In 2014, 30% of UFC fights finished by KO or TKO. That's the lowest it's been since 2010. By comparison, from 2006 to 2009, it ranged from 31 to 43% knockout uh, uh, fights finished by knockouts or, or TKO. In 2014, 21% of KOs and TKOs stem from clinch strikes. Um, let's see. The frequency of KOs and TKOs stemming from ground strikes is at an all-time low at just 16% of 2014 knockouts. To me, that is directly attributable to guys being able to get up Right before you could get a guy down, you could hold him down. You did, how crazy is it when you actually think about it today? And remember, I talked about this when we saw Meta Morris. Like, what's one thing you see the MMA fighters do that does actually give the jiu-jitsu guys some problems? What's the one thing that they do? Right, you got one jiu-jitsu guy. That's all he does. He's a sick athlete. He can pass. He can submit. You got another MMA guy who's a really good jiu-jitsu guy, but not full-time jiu-jitsu. But he's a really good athlete. Blah blah blah. Okay, well, this guy's going to beat this guy, but what's the one thing that this guy does that the, uh, the jiu-jitsu the, uh, the guy has trouble with? Getting up off the bottom. Not just getting out of side control, but getting to the feet. Restarting everything. Forcing the jiu-jitsu guy to either take him down or pull guard. You've seen that in Men Morris. MMA guys have really, really done a just a superb job at that. It's really something I'd like to see jiu-jitsu guys add to their arsenal. I mean, they have very little incentive to do it, but it's it's striking to me how different that is. 
it used to be the case in MMA, you could take a guy down, not even pass guard, and you could just break him from there. That Those days are long gone over and out. I mean, yeah, you know, Royston Wee can sit in someone's half guard forever on a UFC Singapore show on Fight Pass, but anybody good? No. From... 2006 to 2011, ground strike KOs accounted for 31 to 46% of all strike-related finishes per year. Again, 2014 was just 16%. 2014 featured 8% of KOs and TKOs stemming from body strikes. It will always be low, but it's higher than it used to be at 4 to 9% annually since 2010. From 2004 to 2009, body strike finishes never measured more than 3% of all knockouts, with a handful of years being zero. 18% of 2014 KOs and TKOs stem from knees or kicks. That's the second highest all time. 2013 was 20%. Finally, submissions. 19% of 2014 UFC fights ended by submission technique. Since 2011, the annual range has been about 18 to 21%. From 2004 to 2010, fights ended by submission anywhere from 22 to 32%. To piggyback a previous tweet now, both ground strike KOs and subs are down. Submission accuracy is an all-time high, however. 25% of 2014 attempts got a tap. That ties 2012. These are modern-era annual records. With sub accuracy so high, the rate at which fighters attempt subs is at an all-time low. Just at 0.78 attempts per fight gone down, to, uh, gone down since 2010. And then last but not least... From 2000 to 2011, the average UFC fight featured at least one or more submission attempts, right? At least one or more. Since 2002, 0.802, 2013, 0.8, 2014, 0.78. It's declining little, but incrementally, year by year. And thank you for those stats, buddy. I really appreciate that. It was really helpful. Uh, great question. Luke Rockhold versus Leo Machida in a five-round fight. Who would you take and why? Man, that is like such a fun fight. Such a fun fight. Um, you know, a while... I don't know. Boy, that's really tough, you know. I could see Luke Rockhold, the more patient one that we saw against Michael Bisping, using range, backing up Machida. We all know that Chris Weidman... It's hard to say that Chris Weidman wrote the blueprint on how to beat Machida because I think the weight cut affected him and he couldn't apply the continuous pressure. But in a vacuum, I think what Chris Weidman did was not so much show how to beat Leota Machida, but so much as how to win a round against Leota Machida. Like, how do you get through this five minutes and take a 10-9 decision uh, or 10-9 on a judge's scorecard? Well, you know, go back and watch and foot, forward footwork and against the fence and the certain kind of hand combinations he was using and mixing it up, all, all those things. Right, and then of course mixing and takedown attempts here and there. I mean, they didn't go very far, but at least kept them thinking. You get the idea. I think that Luke Rockhold can commit to that. I do, but on the other hand, I can also see Luke Rockhold um, getting caught with some kind of. I don't know. How do I say this exactly? I see Chris Weidman as a little bit harder to predict in movement. And I see Luke Rockhold as slightly, again, not easy, relative to Chris Weidman, slightly easier to predict in movement. 
And so I wonder if that might give Machida just the sort of opening to steal a round, to, to take two or three rounds. Because in the end, there were some competitive moments in that bout with Wyman and Machida, but the end was not really in doubt when it finished, and nor should it have been. With Rockhold, it's like slightly closer. It's, I mean, it's, it's, such, it's such an intriguing match. Such an intriguing match. So if you think Rockhold can do it, you can put together a good case, especially the one we saw against Michael Bisping. That was so, I mean, just such a, 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 it was a technician's performance, you know. Everything was clean the whole way through from the strategy to the execution to the individual techniques to their timing to their, to their value to their lethality to their creativeness to their, I mean, when he needed to be, when he needed to stick to the game plan, he did. And when he needed to improvise, he did. And when he needed to find the right kind of finishing opportunity, he, opportunity, he did. You know, he just had everything was, was going for him. Um, Machida, we didn't see as much against Dalloway, but we just saw that what we know of him to do, what we know of his capability was reaffirmed. Like the, it, that yes, he is older in age, and there are more miles on him than there used to be, and he's had difficult moments in that cage, but he still is incredibly lethal. He still is incredibly uh, talented and capable of delivering on on um, the skill set that we know him for. I don't think any of that's really in question at this point. So I don't know. I would need to think about it more, and and it's an interesting question, but. How does the UFC not make that match? I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? You think Rampage will do good in the UFC? Uh, no, I don't. I thought he lost to Mo Lawal. Um, barely, but I thought he lost him. I mean, listen, I don't think he'll do poorly, but if you're asking, like, who is he going to beat, ask yourself... Has your opinion after the Teixeira fight really changed? Because I can tell you, I was at the Rampage versus Beltran fight. I was at the Rampage versus Lawal fight. I was not at the Rampage versus Mpumbu fight. Okay? But since the Glover Teixeira fight against Lawal, against uh, Beltran and Mpumbu, what did you see that has made you change your opinion in terms of the positive? Right? What, what has changed? Nothing. Nothing. I still think that Rampage has really excellent takedown defense. I think his, if he can get double underhooks, he might have the best, I won't say the best takedown defense in the game, but um, he used to. You go back to the Kevin Randleman fight. If he can get both double underhooks in, you're not getting them down. It's just not happening for you, Jack. He's so strong there. So strong. I think he still has, uh, packs a hard punch. Um, I think he, I think he, He's still probably physically very strong, but he's older now. I don't think he has the same kind of speed. His physique has sort of – he's still very, very strong. Don't get me wrong, but there was a certain chiseled nature to it that has since declined. And I don't want to read too much into that except to say that um, you know a lot of the creativity from his game is not where it used to be. I don't think you see the slams like we did um, or or – you know, he just sort of is like he's he's good at what he's good at. Takedown defense, kind of kickboxing from the outside a little bit, but really boxing on the inside. Uh, and that's where he excels. A little bit of boxing on the outside too, I suppose. Um, but there's not much more. So you ask yourself against as bad as light heavyweight might be, do you favor him in a rematch with Ryan Bader? Because I don't. Do you favor him to beat OSP? Maybe if he catches him. But 
I, all things being equal, I would favor OSP. Um, do you favor him against Phil Davis? I don't. Do you favor him against, I don't know. You see what I'm saying? Like the, the, the way in which you have to match make him, I would prefer that he be on the master circuit. Give him guys he's already fought uh, or, you know, um, has some kind of master's history with a ramp or a, a Rashad Evans, a Shogun, um, something like that, though, three I mentioned before, and or have him, you know, fight someone at heavyweight, something like that, and you can get some value out of it. But if you're expecting him to beat contenders, like young contenders, I, I don't know what's changed since the Teixeira fight that would make you think that. I, I could be wrong. Um, I don't know. I don't think he's a bad fighter by any stretch. I just think he is where he is, you know? You're not going to be able to fight like you were at 25 forever. It's not an insult. It's just the way life goes. And I think he's still capable of beating some guys. But I just have a hard time seeing him beating guys who are training more, training consistently, not in the middle of contractual demands, not at the end of their career, not sick of promoters. And he has every right to be sick of promoters. If you're a Rampage, why wouldn't you be? Everyone's like, oh, Rampage is so bitter about promoters. Aren't you the same fan that says all promoters are like shady and shysty and awful? You, John Q, MMA fan, how many times do you talk about, you know, in a colloquial way, how awful or proverbial way, how awful promoters are? Well, why isn't Rampage allowed to be tired of them? You know what I mean? I'm not, even, like, I'm not even verifying all of his claims or backing them or saying that, that there's merit necessarily, but I just find it weird when I'm like reading fans being like, oh, that's just shady MMA promoters. Okay, well, you know, Rampage has fought for a number of different promoters. Is he not allowed to have, even if it's not, even if it's not even shadiness, is he not allowed to have disagreements with promoters? You know, oh, that Rampage has got a bad attitude. Yeah, well, you know, maybe he's got a good reason to have a bad attitude. <laughs> I've interviewed Rampage a lot of times, man, and like the only times he's been difficult to deal with is when he was weight cutting. If he's not weight cutting, I've never done business with the guy, but um, he, he's, he's, it's not just that he's affable. It's that uh, you know he's an independent, free spirit kind of guy, and I can see how that would run headlong into corporate promotional interest. Um, that, this, that he complains about it is, you know, they say there's some sort of like character flaw. It's not a character flaw. He has every right to complain about promoters. You know, promoters are not out for his well-being. Promoters are out for his services. Only he is out for his well-being. And sometimes the two overlap, and sometimes they don't. And I don't know what Bjorn Rebney told him, and I don't know what Viacom told him, and I don't know what UFC has told him before and now. I have no idea. But this idea that like fighters being upset with promoters continuously, especially in their grumpy later stages of their career, is some sort of character flaw to me is just absurd. Rashad Evans versus Glover Teixeira, who wins and how? I don't know, you know. Part of me feels like Rashad might be able to get the takedown as he consistently applies it, not at first, but later in the match. If he's still got speed, he can get in and out. If he doesn't stand in front of Glover, he wins. So I kind of favor Evans being light on his feet and that being enough for him. But I can see Teixeira piecing him up if things go wrong. Let's see. Putting big stars on Fox. Do you think the UFC should look into putting one of their big stars, such as Jones or Rousey, on Fox? Yes, it may take away from pay-per-view buys from a card they would have been on, but would the short-term hit be worth it in the long-term if large audiences they would be exposed to uh, put on Fox, tune into pay-per-view, start... Wait, wait, say it again. Would the short-term hit be worth it in the long-term if the large audience they would be exposed to on Fox 
tune into pay-per-views starring these fighters in the future. Uh, well, you know, what's interesting about the Fox universe is that it's self-contained for, for me, you know, um, not entirely, but largely self-contained, which is to say, if you put something on Fox of value or perceived value, uh, fans will watch it there. Like you will win there, but I don't know that it has a transitive carryover property. I don't know that there's a lot of evidence that folks were like, you know what? I saw this guy on free TV and on Fox and now I want to buy him on pay-per-view. And I don't really know why, but there hasn't been a ton of evidence about that. I mean, either people like you and they want to see you or they don't. Um, you know, I don't know. They, they, they keep doing this. They might have some internal research to this effect where they put, you know, Uriah Faber as the headlining role on a prelim card to help sell pay-per-views. And certainly you want to have people, you know, at the end of a, uh, TV broadcast before pay-per-view, and certainly you want to have more exciting fights, and it might have some effect, but at the end of the day, I wonder from a quantifiable standpoint how many buys that dude is selling on the end of that card, uh, prelim card anyway. How many how many buys is that actually moving? Um, it's not really clear. So, But I think that if you, you know, yes, to your point, if you put Jones on Fox, it's going to do big numbers, but I don't think that he would return to pay-per-view some sort of like new uncrowned king where the next time he fought on pay-per-view, there would be this surge of interest in him. I, I, I don't know about that. I, I, maybe it's worth, uh, I don't know if it's worth exploring necessarily, but there's just not a lot of evidence that they'll carry over. They'll say, oh, you know what? I got this free show. I'm good. There's a portion of the fan base that, this may sound crazy to you, but there's a portion of the fan base that's happy to take just the free content UFC gives them. And they might buy a pay-per-view here or there. But really, they're just like, oh, it's a free show on Fox? I'll watch it. Oh, it's not free? I'll pass. You see this a lot. I hear this a lot. Uh, again, how big that number is, I'm not entirely sure, but it's not insignificant. There's a, there's enough free content now where if you just said, I'm going to watch free content and maybe I'll buy one or two pay-per-views a year or you know, go to a bar or a friend's house for a pay-per-view, that's a lot of fans. It's a lot of fans because there's a lot of free content and there's a lot of paid content and they're if it comes down to a choice between the two, it's not hard to figure out which one, especially since some of the free content is pretty good. Like they've got to a point now where they've managed to tear it up in a better way, pay-per-view, Fox, Fight Night, and Fight Pass. But um, there was a while there where they weren't. And so you had a lot of times your Fox card being better than your pay-per-view, your Fight Pass being better than your Fight Night. Uh, and it became a problem. It became a problem. So... um. To me, if you had to ask the question of why doesn't John Jones sell more on pay-per-view, the answer of, well, we haven't put up enough free exposure on TV would not be the answer. There are other things that I would point to besides that. And I don't know that even if you did try to put them on Fox and then back on pay-per-view, that it would remedy the situation. All right. Uh, let's see. A couple of weeks ago at Bama 17, Colin Fletcher defeated his opponent, Michael Brightman, by corner stoppage at the end of the second round after a pretty one-sided round in which Brightman took quite a lot of damage. Frank Trigg, who was on commentary, 
talked about he how he totally agreed with his corner's decision and then proceeded to talk about how he would like to see more of this in MMA as he feels too often fighters are taking unnecessary damage because fighters' corners are unable to put the fighter's safety first and admit they are not going to win the fight. What are your thoughts on corner stoppages in MMA, and are they something that you would like to see more of? I mean, it's impossible to not say you don't want to see more of those. You see mercy stoppages in boxing far more often. Like One of the dangerous elements of MMA is its unpredictability. Now, that unpredictability is good for fans because you zig when you're supposed to zag, and boom, you get a head kick, right? And we all go, oh, my God, that was incredible, and it is incredible. And you love all that, and it makes MMA partly what it is. I mean, I don't think you can completely divorce that from it. That's that's kind. I mean, that's MMA's appeal in many ways. <laughs> Not entirely, obviously, but it's a big component. And yet, that is the very thing that keeps us from having a more merciful approach to the game. Hell, you even see this in jujitsu. I mentioned uh, at the last World Championships. I think it was Paulo Miao or Joao Miao. Beat some poor schlub 27 to 4. Like, I mean, I mean, crushed him. The guy was just getting his back taken and leg dragged to death. I mean, he was avoiding submissions, but like, this was insane. This was insane. Okay. And somebody, I was like, you know what? Jujitsu needs tech fall rules. I don't know what the tech fall point differential needs to be. For example, grapple the garden on those team Henzo Gracie versus um, who was the other team? Whatever. Demacio Page got 10 points taken up on him by Sean Bunch. Match over, dog. You just got tech falled. Sorry. You know, you give up 10 points, you know, that's it. That's it for you. Uh, 10 unanswered points in that case. And uh, and and, there, and wrestling seems to be quite okay with it. Now, you can pin in wrestling, and there's only one. I mean, there's not one way to pin, but, you know, there's one kind of pin, right? It's just the shoulder blades on the, on the mat. Um there's all different kinds of submission. There's chokes, there's, there's arms, there's uh, even back cranks, there's leg locks. You get the idea. So there's this idea that because there's this, you know, all these possibilities in the submission game, well, you never know if a guy can pull it out. No, there shouldn't be tech fall rules. Bull S. Like just for just to make it a more spectator friendly thing, you need tech points in, in jujitsu, tech fall points in jujitsu. You know, what is it? I don't know, 15 to nothing? Do you, if you, someone runs up 15 points on you in a jiu-jitsu match, you are getting thrashed. And if you catch him with a Darce late, F you, you got lucky. Sorry, man. I can't imagine having someone put up 15 points. I mean, you're just getting mounted and your back taken over and over and over again. Anyway, you see that bleed over into fight sports. Op, you never know. They can catch him in a submission. Op, you never know. All it takes is one punch, and so you just leave this person out there to get chewed by the piranhas of the game. Uh, it, it's 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 so it's not you know what do you want to call it unethical, terrible, awful. Um, it's it's macabre, it's lugubrious, it's all kinds of things. But the point being is, it really has no place. At some point, you have to sort of decide that in boxing, sure, you see more mercy stoppages because there's less a chance of something. Um, crazy happening. It's a much more defined universe. Yeah, you can take a bad punch in boxing, but you just don't see that kind of chaotic swing or chaotic moment that you do in mixed martial arts, and that affects the culture of mercy stoppages. But we've got to do a better job of just being like, dude, this is not your day. Like uh, the Emily Kagan, uh, Angela Hill fight. I mean, that fight went way too long, way too long. I mean, Angela Hill ha- wasn't stopping her because she hadn't quite polished her finishing technique, but Jesus, she was just laying a beating on her. And for what? Because 
there's a there's a point zero 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 one percent chance a wayward uppercut might stop her might stop Hill in the process, or she might somehow dive on a leg and catch an ankle lock or something. I mean, this is an insane. This is just a. This is just being unable to properly assess someone's chances of reasonable of reasonableness. Basically, this is just somebody looking at this and being like, "It's like you know what it, it reminds me of? It reminds me of Jim Carrey from Dumb and Dumber being like, "What's the chance of a girl like you and a guy like, or no, a g- girl like me and a guy like you, you know, getting together?" And and what's the name? Lauren Holly goes, uh, "Basically, there isn't one." And Jim Carrey goes, so you're telling me there's a chance. That's what this is. That's exactly what this is. You know, yeah, and I knew it. I love that movie. But you get the idea. That's that's the level of risk assessment we have going on here. And 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 it's bleeding over into people's ability to compete, which is just bizarre. Um yo, Luke. Now that 2014 is over, what five bold predictions? Uh oh, you're asking for hot takes. Are you going to make that will happen in 2015, whether it'll be someone losing their belt or outside the octagon, such as more court cases between fighters and companies on issue involving the Reebok deal, unsettling fighters? That's not in the top 15, basing how the ranking isn't done fairly. Five bold predictions. Number one, um, uh, let's see, Bellator will beat UFC in ratings. I won't say consistently, but enough times where it makes things uncomfortable. That's one. Um, two, Rampage never fights. That's a bull. I have no idea if that's true. It's just a bull prediction. Um, you're asking for hot takes. You're going to get them. Uh, let's see. Three. Um, it seems like Monster Energy Drink is about to sign a deal with UFC. And the question is, will fighters get a penny of that? I will say I have no idea, but I'll say no. There's your bull prediction. Four. Um, Bushesha fights in MMA in 2015. Oh, my God. Bold prediction. And number five. Um, CM Punk sells a lot of pay-per-views, but not nearly as many people as many people, not nearly as many as people think. Again, I have no idea if that's true, but it's a hot take. So there you go. Dominic Cruz still go down in history as the greatest of all time. In my opinion, Dominic Cruz has had all the potential to be one of the best pound for pound in the world. But with three ACL injuries, he gives up four years of his prime. When he returns, he will be 30. What's the likelihood he will be the same fighter mentally and physically? And he can he still go down as one of the greats? Or is it too late even if he manages to capture gold? Well, let's see what happens in the next year. Oop. Let's see what happens in the next year at his division. Here's what I would say. The, de- the, se- ugh, the deck is stacked against him uh, in every conceivable way. But you do have to allot for the possibility that he can return at 30. And again, this might be the biggest caveat on earth. But if he can stay healthy enough, go on a run with the final remaining years of his career to at least solidify a place of what if. Maybe he wins the title back when he returns, and you could say, my God, if this guy had four years off, what was he all the time that he could have been here? But I think the problem is, and that that would be a hell of an achievement if he can do that. But I think what the problem is, if with that amount of time off, 
I've already talked about the money. Let's talk about the other side of that, the body of work. Those are all championship fights. He could have been defending his belt or, you know, if he'd lost it going back on number one. I mean, there's no way that Dominic Cruz is at the bottom of the top 10. He's top three in that division, minimum, minimum, right? It's TJ Dillashaw, Hendon Morale, and Dominic Cruz. It's them three donks. That's who it is. And so he's going to be competing in that space the entire time. And if you if you ask yourself, you know, can he beat those guys? I think you can make the case that he could. Um, then you have to say he would have put together a body of work, just the number of fights um, that, you know, would be a lot to reproduce. But because he has missed so many fights, it I'm not saying it won't be that hard to surpass what he's done, but just think of it this way. You know, what was so special about Anderson Silva that he had done? Well, he had beaten 16 guys or he won 16 fights in a row in the UFC. That's 16 times he went in there and did that. Uh, now, that's super impressive for any number of reasons, not least of which is the longevity. But imagine if it had been six, six super, say, say, his, say his six best wins. Take his six best wins, right? And, and keep him in place where they were on the calendar. Imagine he was injured and all the time in the space in between. You would say those six wins are impressive, but it's just six. Once you get to seven, once you get to eight, once you get to nine, once you get to ten, it's kind of hard to look back on those six and be like, okay, listen, those six are amazing. Like, those are amazing. And sure, if he had stayed healthy, what what more could he? Maybe he could have gone to 16, right? So that you could say something like that. But if it's just six, you're just like, this is a manageable number for another elite fighter to beat. And so that is the issue I have in being like, even if he goes on a run, and maybe he goes on a run that blows all of our expectations out of the water. I don't know. But that is where I'd have the hesitancy because you need a body of work to look back on. You need volumes of achievement, contours of achievement, different ways to slice and dice and examine why is this so special? What happened here that was of the most consequence? And if you lack that because you've been unable to simply get in there, that Mizugaki went like nobody beats Mizugaki like that, but now he's lost another year. That's sort of what I'm talking about. The Mizugaki win was incredible by itself. One of those every other year, one of those every four years. Somebody, somebody can come along with some exciting, exciting wins and better, better resume. This is how this is how it all works. Uh, interesting, uh, interesting question. question. I know it is still early into his tenure at Bellator. I can't fully judge how he's doing until later next year, early 2016. But Scott Coker really giving fans better cards than they were before he took over. Not including Bellator 134, the British Invasion card, which looks great. Other monthly shows and non-technical events really don't look that different to cards under Bjorn, for example. Bellator 132, Pitbull versus Strauss, Jenkins versus Karkonian, Zuka versus Alexander, Gonzalez versus Zoromskis, Bellator 133, Madhoff versus Shlomenko, that's a fun fight, I mean it's a weird fight, but it's a fun fight, Curran versus uh, Vichel, Bud versus Noguera, and Honeycutt versus McFarlane. Do you agree that these monthly supposedly bigger shows aren't actually much different to the weekly shows that we were getting under Bjorn? Um, I would agree that they're different. In a number of ways, or else I would disagree that they are different. Number one. Um, now, to your point, 
you know, listen, the roster didn't just switch automatically. Like when they brought in Scott Coker, they didn't bring in 50 new fighters. So you're still dealing with a lot of the same permutations that are available to you to begin with. But I think if you think these are the same kind of main cards you got, you just weren't watching Bellator week after week. I mean, there were cards on these Bellator shows, these like bantamweight quarterfinals and whatnot, where it was just stuff of utter insignificance. Now, there were pieces of what you're talking about, your Zwickers and your Alexanders, your Currens and your Vaishals and things like that. Well, that's not current. That's not quite, not quite so fair. Uh, your Manhoff and your Shlomenko. I mean, Shlomenko was a champion, but you get the idea. Where, you know, a lot of that still has the same kind of Bellator feel to it, and it should because um, they can't just magically update their roster. But one, there was way more filler before. Two, if they had a good fight on paper, it was because of accident by virtue of the tournament, not something the tournament actually facilitated and aided. Number three, this will get a different feel because it will have time in between. Part of what was happening to those Bellator shows was week after week after week after week after week, like, you know, doing 12 weeks in a row or something like that. This had this effect of white noise. Um, these cards aren't substantially better, but they are tweaked slightly. Manhoff versus Schlemenko was a tweak. Honeycutt, Chris Honeycutt, finally getting promoted to a major show and getting the kind of exposure he needs. I did an interview with Chris Honeycutt right when he finished his uh, Edinburgh wrestling career. And he's, I think he's been at the, the throne base camp since then. Uh, we've got women now with Julia Budd coming back. Curran facing Weichel. Weichel was a tournament winner. Curran needs to get back on track after the whole team takedown debacle. Um, Karakanian, a former W uh, World Series of Fighting champion, now facing Bubba Jenkins. So that he's graduated through. So, so my point being is, one, the space in between them gives them a little bit extra life. Two, the roster can't change overnight. Three, I think some of the tweaks and the permutations are better, right? You're just getting a slightly different feel. You're, there's just a hint of spice on it now that there just wasn't before. Um, they're not substantively different, but let's wait and see what the tentpole events are like. And I do think that on Friday nights when these Bellator shows are on, they're going to do better because they had more time to be promoted. They'll be appreciated better because they are slightly better. Um, and uh, I think by the time 2015 is over, you just won't have this feel of like, well, that was just like the last season of Bellator. And I don't think it'll be like that at all. The 14 World MMA Awards. Hey, Luke, now the nominees have been announced for the awards. Can you give us your picks for each category? Um, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll just say um, thanks to Fighters Only for nominating me. If you want to vote for me, that's cool. If you don't, um, please vote for someone in the SB Nation family, either uh, Dave or Ariel, or uh, you know, vote for MMA Fighting. If you don't want to vote for MMA Fighting, please vote for Bloody Elbow. Anybody that's affiliated with SB Nation, that's all that I ask. And I uh, sincerely appreciate everybody who has sent me nice words about it and, and watch this chat and watch the Monday morning analyst and red signal to noise and other things that I've done this past year and, and interviews that I've done and places that I've gone. I, I really appreciate it. So you guys have made this year um, a really productive one. 2015 is going to be even bigger. So, um, so thank you so much. That's all I really have to say about that. Backlash against Hendricks versus Lawler three. Seems like the overwhelming majority of fans don't want to see Hendricks in a fourth title fight. What do you think the chances are of UFC going back on its decision? Unless there's injury, not a lot. Um, 
I just don't see a lot of opportunity for change there. Rory is interesting, certainly on a meritorious level. You can see why they would a would promise it to him to begin with, and b why fans would be upset when it was taken it away. But in a year where a profit is down forty percent, and they're literally signing professional wrestlers with no fight experience whatsoever, the fact that they're having another trilogy fight between these two seems to me the least offensive thing that they're doing, and frankly, quite understandable. Let's see. Pay-per-views in 2015. How many buys would you see the next couple of pay-per-views getting? Jones, Cormier, Silva, Diaz, Weidman, Belfour. And how many buys do you think the following pay-per-views could get if they were happening in 2015? First of all, I don't know. I see Jones, Cormier around six or 700,000. I don't see it much above that. Silva, Diaz happens at the same month, but much later in the month, maybe closer to five or six. Um, Weidman, Belfour between four and five. So you ask Lawler Hendricks three, probably closer to th- you know three seventy five to four, about what the last one did. Uh, Velasquez versus Verdum, three fifty. Aldo versus McGregor, uh, about three fifty maybe. Jones Gustafson two, above four, and Rousey versus Cyborg. I don't know that might be able to clear close to seven hundred eight hundred thousand. You see Bellator shows in the new year averaging over 1 million in viewership. Um, yes, I do. I do. I mean, there's like hemming and hawing about these cards. I do think they're a tweak better. And I just don't think folks understand like part of the Bellator pitch and the executives over there have been quite candid about it is a revert to the norm. Everyone wants to do more, 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 more. We want to do less is more. And I just I just think that's how the fight game is built. I, I just don't think you can reinvent the wheel like that. And you can tell me I'm wrong. That's fine. Um, I just think there's way too much evidence out there that proves absence makes the heart grow fonder. Not too much, not too little. But if you can find that sweet spot of how long to promote a fight and then staging it and giving it the proper shoulder programming and time to breathe and this like anxious anticipation among fans. That's what builds intrigue among other things, of course, but you need that ingredient. Like that has to be there for your major events. So they simply won't do well. And, and, and they clearly, you know, subscribe to this belief. Um, I, I think that for no reason alone, other than that, it'll do well. I remember under the Bjorn revenue era, they were peaking, at least when like guys are like Chuck Congo was on the cards they were peaking above 1 million, sometimes even much further than that. Not a lot further, but, you know, 1 million and some change. Um, you know, if they can, they're putting guys on these cards that are familiar, to, A, to Bellator fans, B, to larger MMA audiences, and C, that would be the right kind of thing for Spike TV. They're giving it time to be promoted, and they're going to have a different way of presenting it to audiences uh and they're going to be able to build around it and as a consequence it's not hard for me to see it going from 750,000 to to over a million at least from an averaging standpoint so we'll see what happens in the end i mean maybe some of these cards don't quite reach there and that's that's okay but uh i think on average they're going to really like substantially outperform what they were doing before you know you're six week in a row and you're in thackerville oklahoma and um you know you've got god uh you know, Hernan Torado on the card, it's like, 
who's really watching this at this point. If you could pick one of the following super fights to see in 2015, which would you pick? Also, who do you see winning each of these fights? Okay, so Jones versus Kane, light heavyweight champ versus heavyweight champ for heavyweight title. That might be up there. Weidman versus, I would pick Kane to win. Weidman versus Jones, middleweight champ versus light heavyweight champ for the title. That's a tougher fight. I can see Weidman winning that. Um, I picked Jones, but I that's a much tougher fight. GSP versus Anderson at 185 pounds. I would pick Anderson. Pettis versus Aldo, featherweight champ versus lightweight champ for lightweight title. I would pick Pettis. I'd pick Pettis. I, I, before I wasn't sure, i definitely pick Pettis now. Uh, TJ versus Mighty Mouse, bantamweight champ versus flyweight champ for the bantamweight title. I would still pick Mighty Mouse. Dude can fight. Brock Fedor. Oof. Uh, I'd I'd say I'd say Fedor. I'd still say Fedor. If if Brock had never left or something, I don't know. But um, I'd still say Fedor. Which one would I want to see? I would want to see Jones Kane, or maybe Pettis Aldo. Those two. Sorry, I'm thirsty. All right, Rampage's reason for leaving. Arihawani talked about the Rampage not getting the pay-per-view number as a reason for terminating the contract, but is that the real reason Rampage is leaving that Rebney left Bellator? Um, well, we're going to find out what it was, but I'm, I'm sure that whatever Rampage is deciding publicly is probably what they believe is their actual legal case, but there's no doubt that there were some... Like, seriously, Rampage is the only one that's better that Rebney's not in MMA anymore, it seems. Um He's like the only guy who's like real sad that 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 Rebney isn't there, or at least you know feels disillusioned. Uh, listen, I'm sure that Rebney probably promised him the universe, and that maybe Coker and the new regime were really happy to have Rampage, but just didn't quite have that same favoritism that he was getting with Bjorn Rebney. So um, that's just speculation on my part, but but it's I don't know, I, I, it's informed speculation um, based on some things that I've seen and heard and and going to some of those shows where rampage was on and part of the Bellator family. Um, you could see it, you know, you could see it. So, uh, I think that he not, he would not have left if Rebney had not left, but I am sure that whatever he's pointing to in this contract is what he believes has been breached, or at least that's why he terminated it. Whether the, uh, uh, Viacom agrees and a court will agree in the process is an entirely different matter. Luke, have you ever been hit with a body shot to the liver? Yes. Do you know some of the mechanics of the liver shot? Why it hurts so much? I believe the whole thing is covered in a, a series of nerve endings. And so when you hit it, it has this, this paralyzing effect. Um, I got hit in one. I got dropped, but it wasn't that hard. And it hurt real bad um, for about, an, I don't know, an hour or so. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, overly the, all that bad. Someone says here, 
For starters, it's the largest organ in the abdomen, so it's a big target. More problematic is that the liver actually extends slightly below the ribcage, so it isn't fully protected. And worst of all, the lining holding the liver is filled with a crazy amount of nerve endings, there you go, that are directly connected to the nervous system. A shot to the liver really disrupts your blood pressure instantaneously, and unfortunately, there's nothing you can do about it. You can be the baddest dude on the planet, but the human body is still the human body. Great response. DJ Dillashaw versus Uriah Favor over TJ versus Henan Barrow, too. Yeah, like what do you do now at that weight class? It's such it's such a mess. It's such a mess now at Bantamweight. Um, I suspect that in a year where, again, money was down and injury is still a problem and you have all this, these different things you're trying to work out, I, I think TJ Dillashaw versus Faber is probably going to be the, the way they try to go here. Um, Henan Barrow, I, I thought I, I thought that people saying Henan Barrow didn't look good against Mitch Gagnon are are kind of wrong. I didn't see the fight live, and so I went and checked it after the fact, and I thought he was just facing a guy who was you know shorter but quicker and much more uh, active on the draw, um, trying to launch offense. Not that Barrow looked bad, but Barrow dropped him in the first and finished him in the third. This is hardly the performance of somebody who sucks. Um, but more to the point, Faber versus Dillashaw in Sacramento. I mean, this would do big, big numbers, all things, you know, considered. Uh, the, the, the belt stays at Team Alpha Male. Um, friend versus friend. Teammate versus teammate. Uh, alliances within Sacramento. Um, it would be a lot. It would do a lot. It would be an interesting storyline that you could sell to the greater masses versus Barrow again. Not that that's not a fight of meritorious value, but it has no other narrative involved. It has nothing that'll suck you in short of the fight itself. I'm happy to take either, but I can see why UFC would say, well, this is a juicier angle. This is, this is, this is material that we can use for greater financial uh, success here. So that's probably the direction that they'll go. Let me just say something though, that that, that this reminds me all of, and it's the Dominic Cruz thing here still like this. We're even talking about this one, because there were these rumors and, 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 you know, theoreticals posited all of the last year, but but now it's more real because there's just not a lot of options at Bantamweight. Like, what are you going to do? Asun Sao is out now, as we also know. So Cruz is out. Asun Sao is out. You know, Boral is back, but he got crushed before fighting Gagnon against Dillashaw. Faber is, you know, he, again, he beat Rivera, but what was that all about? Dillashaw had to fight Joe Soto. So there's just not a lot of opportunity there. You got to make, you know, lemonade out of lemons. But the point I want to get across is, and I mentioned this on Twitter yesterday, like, you know, UFC comes out and is like, here's our calendar for 2015. And they should have, man. It's cool, you know. Let, let folks know what, you, what weeks you want. I mean, it's better than nothing. I, I have no problem with that. Um, who, who would? But, I mean, we got to have an honest conversation with ourselves here, guys. You know, part of my reservation, I mean, listen, why is UFC doing 45 shows next year? I'm not getting into an oversaturation debate. I'm just telling you. Like, why are they doing 45 shows next year? Because they have to at this point. They have, I mean, they could probably trim a couple of shows here or there, but basically to meet all the contractual demands that they have for Fox, for pay-per-view, and for their international partners from a live event standpoint and from a content standpoint, say to fill up UFC Network, uh, UFC, the UFC, sort of the, the, the Latin American channel, they need content. They need fresh content. Not going to happen magically. That's why they need all these shows. To me, that doesn't absolve them of the argument of that they're still doing too much to their product, but it's neither here nor there. For the time being, they're in this, okay? Right. But the problem is, 45 shows is a lot of shows. And 
what happened in 2014 that made running the 45, 46 shows they did this year so problematic? Injuries. Guys, nothing has changed. Nothing. There's nothing different going on, which is to say, you know, we have this feeling like 2012 was a down year, you know, 2013 was a great year. 2014 was a down year. Well, we must be heading into a peak year. Folks, I hope we're headed into the greatest year in mixed martial arts history. And maybe we are. Maybe this is me just being a nervous Nelly. And that's fine. I'm happy to be. Listen, I am all too happy to be wrong here. Believe me. But at some point, you have to ask yourself, when the calendar goes from the 31st of December to the 1st of January, what changes in terms of what guys are doing to themselves to get injured? Nothing. Nothing changes. Whatever they're doing now, they are in all likelihood going to keep doing. Now, maybe this year was aberrant in terms of the number of injuries, but this idea that we have an injury bug, no, we have an injury epidemic. This injury bug has been around since what, 2011? We're, 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 we're bordering on the fourth year of a bug? No, we are boarding on the fourth year of a paradigm shift unless somebody does something. This is where we're at today. It's a problem. This is why I'm like, you're really going to run 45 shows? Really? I mean, I guess if you have to, you have to. Okay, fine. You know, that's the business you're in. You know, that's okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, no one cares what I think anyway. It's, it's fine, but... How are you going to do all that when there's no handle on this injury problem at all? We haven't even gotten into 2015, and the 2015 calendar has already been affected by Dominic Cruz and Rafael Asuncao. Not in you know, not in a calamitous way, but not in a good way. And they are just the beginning, you know. So, folks need to understand this: that that this idea that well everything just works cyclically. Believe me, I hope that it does. But I'm, I'm struggling to understand what the mechanics of that, that, that cyclical movement would be. Why would the injuries all of a sudden, January 1st, just slow down to a trickle? Why? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see why they would. I, I hope that they do. I hope not a single guy gets injured next year. But this is a sport, you know, at least after the fact, with a 100% injury rate. Um. So, you know, we can these, these thinking through these matchups like, well, what would be better, Dillashaw versus Faber or Dillashaw versus Burrell? These are important conversations to have. I'm not diminishing them. But the real thing to consider here is, well, wait a second. Why are we talking about this? We're talking about this because we are still dealing with injuries that are having a critically negative impact on the sport. And what is changing by the time the calendar rolls to 2015 that makes us think this is going to slow down or stop? And I have yet to hear anything. Now, you may have mentioned that Dana, you may know that Dana White mentioned that they were going to have this injury rehab clinic in their Las Vegas offices, the news offices. Okay, cool. Let's see what happens there. But that, that will slow down things, you know, worldwide or, you know, even in a real f- way, even domestically. God, I hope so. But until we see some evidence of that, we need to be prepared for this to continue. Rogan lists UFC promos. With promos like Jones DC, the Itsy Bitsy Spider, and Nick Diaz's in order to love fighting, you have to hate it. 
all of those don't have Rogan involved? Should UFC use more Rogan, less promos? It's not that it has Rogan or no Rogan. It's that are they inspired or not inspired? And when you're doing so many shows, one after the other, you have to do something in a creative way. And they got into a rut there, even through 2012 and 2013. Remember that one event they had where it was like, boom, 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 boom. A bang, 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 bang. And they were putting onomatopoeia on the screen. You know, that was that was a low point for me, which is like, you're not even trying at this point. I think they realized we can't keep doing this over and over again. Yes, it's easy to like, you know, cut and paste audio and put it over highlights and you can get something out the door pretty quickly. And maybe that's the only option you have for a variety of these shows. Okay, fine. But if you got a bigger show like Jones DC, you got to put in the effort. If you got a bigger show like even Conor McGregor and, and Dennis Seaver, if you have a bigger show like, Nick Diaz, Anderson Silva. These are these are these are important moments in the history of your organization. These are important moments in the history of these fighters' lives. These are important moments in the history of the sport. You got to give it the treatment that it deserves, even if it means more work and more hours and more people you got to hire. At least for those events, you got to do more. And they did, and I think it's been a major success, and they deserve credit for it. Go to Twitter here for just a second. I don't want to ignore these guys. If it wasn't for contractual obligations, do you think pay-per-view and Fox cards should get two weeks layoff to promote at least? Uh, Luke, how well do you think Parier will do at 155? I think he will do uh, about as well as he did at 145. Is there anywhere I have to eat while in D.C.? Um... Yes. You should go to DC Noodles. You should go to Granville Moors. You should go to Impala. You should go to uh God, what's the place I love to go eat? Uh Meridian Pint. You should go to Las Placitas. You should go to um uh oh uh Rumba Cafe. I'll get you going. Do you think the newest injury will force Cruz into retirement? No. You know, if Fedor's negotiation with the UFC included lifetime likeness clauses, I would be shocked if they gave that away to UFC. They may have tried, but I don't, I don't, I don't think in the end that was the stumbling block. If that's what you're asking. So it says first time actually watching the chat live. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Is this the end for Cruz? A lot of questions about this being the end for Cruz. No. Um, it says there were audio issues, but they were fixed after the refresh. Good. Do you like Bulgarian bags or kettlebells for grappling strength training? Any, any other suggestions besides gi pull-ups? I definitely prefer kettlebells. Um, I also just prefer body weight exercises, to be perfectly honest. What non-main event or title fight are you looking forward to the most in 2015? What non-main event or title fight? Um, the return of Habib Nurmagomedov, if it's not a title fight. If they give him like Gil Melendez or if they give him, I don't know, the winner of Cerrone versus Jury. Even Cerrone versus Jury. That's what, that, Habib Nurmagomedov, that's the guy you got to be watching next year. you got to see what he's up to. Because if anyone's going to challenge Pettis, it's going to be that kid. Nate Diaz, fine. Two-part question. Do you, do you know what Nate Diaz was fined an additional 10000 for? Yes, for not doing a media obligation. 
In fights such as Mayweather Marquez or fairly recently Canelo versus Angulo, the top-tier fighter missed weight. Instead of losing 20% of the purse, they negotiated a penalty. Could the same be done in MMA? It could be, but it's unlikely. That's much more of a boxing tradition thing. Luke, why is it not only in MMA there is show and win money? This is an issue that uh, the fighters who are in the lawsuit have addressed directly, but there's just general idea about how contracts are structured. It's believed by UFC management that if you have a contract that's structured on show and win money, you reward the guys who not only show up, but the guys who win, the guys who are putting in um, um, the successful performances. You want to you know, eat what you kill kind of an organization. I think fighters would prefer, like Gilbert Melendez, you just get a flat rate, period. So the way to look at these contracts is why are they like this? It's because this is the way contracts have worked for fighters who haven't negotiated for a better contract. Again, do you or do you not believe that fighters have a right to maximize their value in the window in which they are a professional competitive fighter? My answer to that is yes. And so if the answer to that is yes, what conditions do you need to create for that to happen? To me, getting win of show versus win is a big way to do that. If you want the following matchups, Rampage versus Shogun. At this point, I'd take Rampage, I think. I don't know. Hunt versus Miocic. I would take Miocic because his chin is ridiculous. Baral versus Alcantara. Baral. Eric Silva versus Akiyama. Uh, Silva. Nate Diaz versus Dustin Poirier. Diaz. Assuming he's not injured. Sarah Kaufman versus Holly Holm. Kaufman. Henry Cejudo versus Wilson Hayes. That's a tough one. Uh, maybe Cejudo. Edson Barboza versus Jorge Masvidal. I would go with... That's a tough one because Masvidal would get lit up early. Ah, that's a tough one. That's a good question. Edson Barboza versus Jorge Masvidal because Jorge could tag him up with his boxing but would get chewed up badly early. Um, My heart says Jorge Masvidal. My head says Edson Barboza. That's a great question. Year one of Fight Pass. Great question. How do you rate Fight Pass after one year? Do you see its future potentially being more or less bright after using it for one year? Let me say something about Fight Pass because I was an early critic of it, and I, and I was thinking about this just on my own the other day. Um, you know what about Fight Pass? And I will be honest about Fight Pass. I like it. I like Fight Pass. I enjoy using it. I enjoy watching the Ultimate Fighter, the Latin America show on there. I enjoy, you know what, when I'm doing predictions, sometimes I like to go and you know, look at old footage, maybe see, you know, refresh my memory. I did that, for example, for the uh, Elias Sil- uh, Silver- Silverio versus Rashid Megamadoff fight. Uh, I wanted to go back and look and see, you know, refresh my memory about who these guys are and what they've done. Um, it's helpful in that way. Uh, it's great to watch Invicta. It's great to watch prelim cards. Now that they have Google Chromecast, with all the bugs worked out, it's even better. I like Fight Pass. I am happy to pay for it for $10. But there's one caveat to all this. When I don't have a reason to use Fight Pass, I don't use Fight Pass. Does that make sense? In other words, if a fight is on, okay, let's turn on Fight Pass. Hey, if I have to write a predictions column, hey, let's turn on Fight Pass. Hey, if the Invicta's on, let's turn on Fight Pass. I never just like, you know what, let's get on Fight Pass and just have fun. I never do that. So if I have a criticism of Fight Pass, it's that, the, the yes, of course, the service has tremendously benefited. 
And I know that they're trying to find things to bring you back. They're putting on these guys, you know, uh, they're bringing, they're making like playlists basically for like, oh, here's John Jones fight documentary, and here's Rashad's, and here's, you know, here's uh, all different kinds of fighters, uh, fighters that they've done this for. But I'm still, I still haven't quite found a need to get on there and just and just fool around at least on a consistent basis. And I'm, I don't know what the answer to that is. I only present it to you as a critique because I don't have, I haven't thought more about it, but the only criticism of fight pass is that if you don't need to use it, it just stays away. It's, it's like a broom. You only need it when you clean. And when you're not cleaning, you don't need it anymore, but it's the broom is great. Like it's does what it's supposed to do. It's great. You know? Um, so I, I start out being a big skeptic of fight pass. You can do big traffic on it. People like Paige Van Zandt can make big impacts on it. The streaming is great at home. I don't think it's a very expensive service, personally. I like the library. They've worked out a lot of the tagging and search issues. It's still got some to go, but it's gotten a lot better. It's really, really good. The Fight Pass is great. It just, I don't use it unless I'm supposed to. And I would like a reason to just get on there and play on Fight Pass. And I don't know what the answer is, but that's sort of what I'm thinking about. You have to pick one. Would you rather have an hour-long talk with CM Punk versus the Green Power Ranger or an hour-long talk with Sensei Seagal's contributions to MMA? Seagal, by far. All right. Rate the skills, and then we'll do this and we'll get out of here. Rate the skills of Jones and Cormier. So we're all hopeful that this amazing fight happens between these two great, uh, between these two greats. Um, this is one of the greatest fights that currently can be made, and, be, and these two greats are such a wonderful matchup. Okay, yes, yes. Rate the following skills for Jones and Cormier on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the best. Then who would you say would win in that fight? Okay, overall fighter IQ, for sure, John Jones. I'm not going to give you numbers, but I'll tell you who's got better ones. Overall fighter IQ, John Jones. Stand-up striking, John Jones. Stand-up defense. Probably Jones. Stand-up striking power, probably Cormier. Takedown offense, Cormier. Takedown defense, Cormier. Overall wrestling ability, Cormier. Overall jiu-jitsu technicality, Jones. Submission offense, Jones. Submission defense, probably a wash. Ground and pound. I'm going to say Jones, but that is debatable. Ability to finish a fight, Jones. Ability to maintain in a five-round fight. Close, but Jones. These are good questions. Luke, Bellator will be sold or abandoned by Viacom by the end of 2015. Agree or disagree? Could not disagree more. But this is what they ask. Viacom is a broadcaster, not a fight promoter. The broadcast schedule for 2015 is being scaled way back to once a month. There really won't be enough fight cards to showcase the top fighters while bringing along the prospects. Only having a show once a month allows fans to forget about Bellator between cards and does nothing much to grow the promotion. If ratings drop, which you expect, Will Viacom pull the plug at the end of 2015? You should expect ratings to go up, not down. And moreover, they, they're they not taking on guys they can't give fights to. And if they do, then we should note that and murder them for it. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think what you're going to find is that ratings go up. The question is not, will they go up or go, they go down? They will go up. The question is, do they go up enough to make things profitable? That is the key. Because I don't think the new way Bellator does business, they're going to make much money, at least not in the short term. So that's the issue. Not are they just going to spiral out of control and into the depths of despair. No, they're going to make money. Um, are they going to make ratings anyway? The question is, are they going to make money? Are they going to make enough money to make it all worth it? 
That's what you're looking for. And nothing more and nothing less. Uh, I will answer the rest of these questions on text. I'll get in here and uh, mill around. I appreciate everyone watching. I'll probably do one more of these before the end of the new year because I was an idiot and thinking this was the end of 2014, but whatever the case may be. Um, thank you for everyone who voted for me on the World MMA Awards. Thank you to Fighters Only for nominating me. Um, go vote if you haven't. Again, just vote for anybody SB Nation. That's all I ask. And um, email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. You can also get at me on Twitter at Thomas. Sorry I had to change up the... Uh, the place and the time of the chat, but I want to give you at least the chat on this Christmas weekend. Guys, everybody, do not drink and drive. If you got to go drink, call a cab, sleep in the car, in the back seat, not with the keys in the ignition because you can still go to jail for that. Hell, sleep in the trunk if you have to. Well, don't sleep in the trunk, but you get the idea. Do not drink and drive. Don't text and drive. Be safe this holiday. If you're going to get hammered because you're drinking a, four, uh, a hurricane, which is strong enough to start an engine, man, please do not get behind the wheel of a car. That's all that I ask because I want you to come back here and I need you for these chats and that's what makes this all worthwhile, right? Uh, I will see you guys next week. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, whatever you celebrate. Stay safe and of course, stay frosty.